One, two, three, four, five. All right. I like it. Staying alive. Staying alive. Staying alive. Okay. I'm ready. What, Bill? <laughs> it, just, it just hit me. I love it. <laughs> because I'd hit record about 10 seconds before you started doing Staying Alive, and we now have a new ending. That was just, I was just in awe of the moment because that was pure gold. I know you're getting your brand formed, but I just got your brand. There it is. There's your campaign brand. Staying alive. Is that it? That's it. <laughs> oh, wow. Welcome to Season 2 of Black, White, and Blue in the South, a podcast discussing democratic politics with a Southern flair. This is the first episode of the new year, and we've titled it Kimler versus Brooks in the Battle of the Chicken Sandwich with a Little Pickle. You'll learn why in just a few moments. I'm Bill Kimler. I'm Jamil Brooks. And we're coming to you from Greenwood, South Carolina, a little red county in a very red state. If you like what you hear in this episode, and we guarantee that you will, please leave a rating. Tell your friends about us, follow us on social media, or better yet, contribute $10 to the Seahorse Defense Fund as those cute little weirdos of the sea are under attack from Moms for Liberty. <laughs> Just listen to this vicious verbal assault that a Moms for Liberty member and leader launched against seahorsey rights. Seahorses are fascinating. We'd love to learn about seahorses, but the selection of the seahorse seems very deliberate in the fact that it's the male seahorse that births the babies, the male seahorse that assumes the role of mother. Leading up to that, you have seahorse graphic seahorse mating. I am shocked that just because the seahorse family doesn't fit the traditional nuclear family model, that they have stay-at-home seahorse daddies while the seahorse mommies go off to work? Please, 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 won't you please help? (laughs) God, like, you can't make this crap up. (laughs) They do, they do. (laughs) You can always drop us a note at blackwhiteblueinthesouth at gmail.com. Send us your comments, questions, topic ideas. You can also follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and even threads. But please do leave a review, even if it's just to let us know you are listening. We have a Linktree page that can connect you to everything, so look at those show notes, where we'll have that and links to all the material mentioned in today's episode. Hi, Jamil. Listen, I can't even say hey first. Did she not go to science class? Don't we know what the male seahorse does? I mean, yes, that's what they're complaining about. But that's biological. That's science. What they want us to do about oh, that? Oh, it's indoctrination. Can't, okay. can't be having seahorse daddy talk Gosh. in the classroom. I was good, Bill, until you started off with that. <laughs> Hi, Bill. We're are, back. Are we done with 2024 already? <laughs> Bring on 2025. We need a (laughs) do-over. Well, let me welcome in the new year with a gift for you. What do we have? What do we have? I get a gift. I get a gift. (laughs) Yes! You see that? Take the dang census. (laughs) No, let's read that correctly. It's your quote. What's it say? It says, take the dang blame census. That's look, right. Look That's at the you. locks flowing on this. Look, I love it. And look at the back. Oh, my gosh. So she was, and, and by the way, this was a gift from my daughter, Amanda. Yes, love she her. She was hey, so tickled pink to get oh, that to you. my gosh. And the, the several times we've met each other this year, and I keep forgetting to bring that shirt. That's so right. So I'm glad I had I'm that with me this Thanks, time. I'm glad you did. Thanks, Amanda. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you better have it, Bill. So now we're back into happy space. Okay, we are. I'm going to keep us going forward in the happy space. Okay, let's try did it. Did you know that we received a glowing review while we were on break? No. We did online. Oh, wow. Uh, this was a, an Apple Podcast review that we got. Okay. The uh, review was titled, Podcast Inspires Hope. Oh. And instead of me reading it, 
let's turn to our AI voice generator and imagine this lovely individual speaking to us in person. Now, I had to choose a voice style. Okay. And since the username was Peony Marigold, okay. I took the chance that this would be a feminine voice. Okay. So I know one shouldn't assume anything. I just went with statistical chance here and had to pick. So here's the review we received. That there are progressive people this smart and engaged in South Carolina politics gives me hope for the future of both the South and the whole U.S. This thoughtful podcast is in my regular rotation, even though I'm a New York State resident but with Alabama roots. I appreciate the nuanced and respectful discussion. Highly recommend. If you're interested in U.S. politics on a somewhat micro scale, definitely balances well with other more big picture pods. Listen to that. That's what's up. I know. I like it. I got inspired when I read that. So thank yes. you, Peony Marigold. Now, thank you. I, I will have to say I'm feeling kind of bad about making that assumption of the feminine voice. Well. I, it's just, you know, we're liberals. Yeah. We believe in inclusion and, and not making assumptions and, yeah. and, and judging things. So to balance things out, here's the review again, oh my God. but in a male voice so that we've covered all bases. Cover Here bases. we go. That there are progressive people this smart and engaged in South Carolina politics gives me hope for the future of both the South and the whole U.S. Okay, that guy sounds drunk, so I'm going to okay, stop it there. Okay, I was going to say, he doesn't sound hopeful at all. <laughs> he sounds like he's about to pass out. Yeah. All right, so anyhow, we'll just stop it there okay. and thank Peony Marigold thank for those kind words. Yes. And we ask you, if you've not taken the opportunity to leave a review, please do so. It, do so. it fuels Jamil and I to carry forward with this. In fact, Jamil was about to quit the podcast, and Peony Marigold, you single-handedly <laughs> saved the show and got her back on the microphone. The pressures are real. <laughs> Fired up! Ready to go! Fired up! Ready to go! Fired up! Ready to go! Jamil and I are both running for office here in South Carolina. What are we Ooh. running for, Dr. Brooks? State House seats, 12 and 13. You've got 12 and I've got 13. We and we have had an extraordinarily busy month. And we want to pull back the curtain a little bit yeah. and share with you what's been happening. So what's yeah. first and foremost on your mind from what happened then, since we last broadcast since to our fine listeners? Since we last broadcasted. Did we get the parade already? Have no. We, we haven't talked about the parade. No. Okay, so the parade was super cool. Yes. I think we had, uh, I think actually Bill and I are probably the most excited because it's like kids in a candy store just to be out. And here's what I want to say about Kimler for, you know, South Carolina and Brooks for South Carolina, uh, Jamil for South Carolina. You notice that we were out and walking amongst the crowd, touching people, talking to people. That's the type candidates that we are. And I think we had a chance to really show who we are as people, not to just ride and wave, but we because we were physically able, we were out and walking and touching. And I think that was just like a moving time for us. So let's set the scenario here in Greenwood. Yes. The city of Greenwood had a Christmas parade. We did. And I, I have to tell you, I have never seen such a crowd of people in Greenwood. Yeah. I mean, I would say easily two, 3,000 people yeah. came out and lined the streets. It might have been just about everybody in the city of Greenwood came out. Yeah. And we had prepped for almost two weeks little bags of candy with our stickers on them to, you know, to help spread the word about our campaigns. Maybe two or three pieces of candy in each little baggie that you hand out to the kids. Yeah. We ran out a thousand bags Didn't you like, halfway through the when parade. When we turned the corner and I saw like a million other people, I just wanted to cry. I thought, oh my God, we are completely out. And we were really strategic with trying to pass it out and make it last. And when we turned that corner, it was just like somebody opened a gate and there are about a million more people standing there. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Yes. We just yeah. didn't have enough. Right. I actually felt, you know, my, my stomach sink. I was yeah. like, oh, there's more people. Yeah. You know? Although it was good to be in front of more people. So your husband drove his beautiful convertible. He did. We had uh, big magnets on either side of the one car with our faces. Way. Yes. Yeah. Where did that one go? I don't know. So, okay, listeners, if you are in the Greenwood area, look in people's yard. <laughs> we are missing our car decal that has Bill and I on it. Beautiful decal. It came off and it has not been seen since. Yeah. I can't imagine somebody else has slapped it on their car and Maybe stole it from Maybe we're framed us. in someone's house. Do you think it just yeah. fell off or do you think somebody took it? 
I, I don't know. I mean, it made it through the whole parade. That's what I recall. On. So it wasn't until we parked in the church parking lot and they drove off. Now, from that point, we're missing one sign. The only other thing that I'll observe that I did not expect about this parade was how dang blang fast it went. <laughs> like a parade, I thought, was a slow thing that you and I could walk casually I, alongside I the car. And we hand out the candy <laughs> at our leisure and we just mosey on. Your husband was doing about 25, 30 miles an hour. <laughs> Don't put that on my <laughs> But But yeah. that's because the car is yeah. in front and the people behind were doing the same. We had and to so, move. I'm handing out candy. Next thing I know, I'm part of the the 96 high school yes, marching band. I stayed in the band. I stayed right. in the band. And I was like, well, just teach me what we're going to do next because so I'm you, a party out. So you talk about being among the people. People yeah. thought we were associated with the band. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they knew to vote for us because that car was 20 miles ahead. So you talk about yeah. being among the people. For me, I was more or less running past the people, yeah. throwing candy like yeah. a madman, trying to get caught up. And then so we cannot miss that my mom was actually in the audience dancing with um, the cutest little girl ever. So whoever the mom is that had members of uh, Kimler for South Carolina and Jamil for South Carolina, you have a video of your daughter dancing with a couple of members of our campaign. Oh my, cutest the, thing uh, ever. The girl that cuts my hair, she said she saw me in the parade, but then she commented she only saw me run by. <laughs> and then let me tell you, I'm six one. I I am not in the greatest of shape, and me running by is like Frankenstein taken off from a village full of pitchforks and torches. It's not a a pleasant looking sight. So I don't know if I've won any votes by. But we still, did. it was we fun. It, it was, was fun being in front of thousands of people. I agree. So that was one main event. the The other thing really was uh, volunteers. Yeah. A call for volunteers. Yeah. And we put out the call early, both at um, the Greenwood County Democratic Party breakfast meeting, plus uh, emails and online, et cetera. And when you're a, a local candidate looking for people to stand up, man, if you get five, six people that are willing to make phone calls for you or go canvassing, yeah. that's a blessing, an absolute blessing. I mean, we're not Barack Obama here running for president. You command tens of thousands of volunteers. Yes. You're a local state house representative. Do you know how many we got sign up? Just say it so I can feel better. 55 names. I think that's cool. 55 people filled out the form online and said, I am willing to spend some of my time working wow. on your behalf, whether it's for Jamil, whether it's for myself or for yeah. both. They stood up 50. That's how strongly people want change in this area. Yeah. And I felt inspired by that reaction. That's awesome. Thank you. So we held up. a volunteer kickoff event last week. Yeah. And uh, half of those who signed up were able to make it out, and we had um, you know some food, uh, some beverages, and for a, almost two hours, we talked uh, about our strategy, we introduced ourselves, yeah. we talked about the various volunteer roles, and then we even talked some strategy, yeah. which I thought was really nice. Yeah. Did you have any observations from that? I think what is impressing most people is that we are not just like shooting from the hip here. Like, this is thoughts going into this. We're strategic. We're organized. We have an anticipated outcome, and we're laying out what it takes to get there. We got a review because we did the sign-up digitally. Okay. It asks people, what did you think of this meeting? And we got some very nice responses. Good. One of them was that they said we were knowledgeable about the issues. Yeah. At the end, we opened up the floor for Q&A. And what I was expecting mm -hmm. were questions about the campaign. You know, what oh, do you, wow. how do you going to approach this? Or where do you think we should knock doors? Or what about this time? What are you going to do in the summer versus October? And I was expecting campaign-focused questions. Okay. Instead, we got issue-focused questions. Which is awesome. What did you feel about gun violence? What do you feel about electronic vehicle taxes? Yeah. Boy, that guy had a, yeah. a, a big beef on the vehicle tax. Yeah. He, did I tell you he called me? <laughs> Let me know I gave the wrong answer. I love him. <laughs> that you had the right answer. That's right. <laughs> Control your constituents, Dr. Brooks. Love him. <laughs> <laughs> that was great talking to him. Yeah. So it was a, a very inspirational event, and we look forward to getting our volunteers active. Even though it's only January, we've got a much bigger curve. I mean, yeah. the opponents can just stick out yard signs, and they've proven they don't have to engage with yeah. their constituents in any meaningful manner. Uh, but we do. We do. We do. we do. So I look forward to that. That was great. The other thing about the campaign is that we have hit a little road bump. Yeah, and we should uh, discuss it. You know, you, one of the most common reviews we get about this podcast is that 
Jamil and I have a good rapport. Yes. And on the issues, we complement each other. We do tend to be oriented in the same direction. But over the holiday break, we did find a wedge issue. We did. And the topic there was Chick-fil-A on Sundays. Here's the headline. Quote, new bill could force Chick-fil-A to be open on Sundays at some locations in New York. Our own senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, rushed to New York City to defend Chick-fil-A's honor. Let's take a listen to what Lindsey had to say about it. Hey everybody, back in New York, about to have lunch at Chick-fil-A in New York City. As I speak, the state of New York is trying to pass a law requiring Chick-fil-A to stay open on Sundays at state rest stops. This violates the Constitution, this violates the religious liberty of, uh, of all of us, uh, and the company called Chick-fil-A who tries to honor the seven. Uh, lend your voice to this cause, stand up for Chick-fil-A, we need to have their back. Now, Jamil, you know I love you. And you are a tremendous podcast partner, but I don't know if I can continue on with somebody who's in alignment with Lindsey Graham. Okay, first. Can you explain yourself, yeah, first, please? First, let's, let me separate the two. <laughs> um, Jamil and in alignment with Lindsey Graham should never come in the same statement, okay? You can break that up however you want, but not in that same sense. <laughs> That's number one. Um, number two, I'm not necessarily agreeing with anything that he said because if he is saying we need to have Chick-fil-A's back because it's unconstitutional and it's messing with religious freedoms, he can stand that hard on when you get your chicken sandwich, but he can't stand that hard to protect constituents that are in his state. So when we're talking about religious freedoms and constitutional rights, I'm going to argue for something a little bit grander than a chicken sandwich. So <laughs> I don't agree with him, but I agree with the stance of where we're going here. Okay, so let's I, explain. Yeah, so I don't feel that, this is what I've been saying, when Chick-fil-A came up with their business model, their plan, it was not to include a seven-day work week. So every financial forecast, every budget, every business plan application they've submitted has been Monday through a Saturday. That's that. When Chick-fil-A secured property in New York, it secured it under the same business model that it had been since its operation. So to tell them that because you are here, you are now going to modify your business plan for one day of service to ensure that you meet what we're asking you to do, I feel is not right. So your point of view is more contractual oriented Correct. as opposed to any religious debate or constitutional freedom perspective. Correct. Okay, so let's set the scenario. The locations we're talking about are New York State-owned locations along their throughways. They own these travel centers, you know, where there's shops and stores and rest areas and restaurants and food marts, etc. And Sunday is one of the heaviest travel days. I know I do a lot of driving on Sunday myself. And people rely upon these travel centers to grab some bite to eat and to use the facilities. So there's an expectation that these places would be open. Okay. And so that's what this bill was trying to address, saying, listen, all the truckers and drivers out there, you know, and they, if they wanted a chicken sandwich and it happens to be Sunday, why should they show up to one of our New York State rest areas and find it partially open? You know, where only some stores are open and others are not. Yeah. But I do get that point of view. It's like, hey, when you signed on Chick-fil-A. You knew. You knew. You knew. So here's a little more about the law that I think is probably not as well known. Okay. Those Chick-fil-A's that are in operation are not impacted at all. Okay. The owner of those Chick-fil-A's, it's a retail company called Apple Green, they recently entered into a 33-year contract with the Thruway Authority, and they've got leases on those spaces to um, run their restaurants under mm -hmm. that agreement. Mm -hmm. And the authority spokesperson said they will be able to operate under their normal hours under that contract. So they're not impacted. <laughs> this law is only for any new throughway rest areas that are built or any new lease opportunities that the contract's going to be. Listen, the expectation is, as a business, you need to be open seven days a week. Yes. And I think that the state is within their right to set those terms yes. at the beginning of a contract. At the beginning. So when this is another thing about headlines. So exactly. Lindsay jumps out here and records, and the I don't know if you're listening, but there's a chuckle in his voice when he's saying some of the things like, and we've got to, and, and we need to, 
But he jumps out here, and this is what I've always harped on, to create another distraction. We have so much crap going on. Who in the Sam world is thinking about getting a chicken sandwich on Sunday? If you roll up the Chick-fil-A, and if you've eaten there before, you know it's going to be closed on Sunday. Don't stop at that one. Go to another one. That's right. And for him to insult us to think that we won't think that it's a contractual obligation is even more disrespectful. So I do put blame kind of in two ways. You know, I read the headline to you. And there was no indication there. I mean, it sounded like Chick, uh, Chick-fil-A was about to have all their stores shut down by yeah. the state of New York under yeah. this law. And then Lindsey Graham perpetuates it because I find it's either two things. They either didn't read the law to find out exactly what the terms were. And I'm sure if he had read it, he'd be like, oh, that's it, right? Only for new locations and it's a business contract thing. Or they do know exactly what's going on. And they fly up there anyway because they have a personal agenda, like you said, of distraction, yeah. of getting people riled up. And either way, I don't, I don't appreciate either of those approaches. I personally take the approach of understand and read something to the best of your ability before you open your mouth about it. Yeah. And never base an opinion just on a headline you read. You've got to read the dang blang article. Yeah, you got to do. <laughs> you got to dive in deep sometimes, and and that's a lesson I think to be learned uh, in this particular case. But yes, Lindsey, I thought uh, embarrassed himself, uh, and so did our congressman Jeff Duncan, who jumped on that train again, only hearing what he heard from Fox News or reading the headlines, and then jumped on the whole religious liberties thing. And both of those individuals should be real busy with other stuff. So with that out of the way, um, let's talk about some things we have learned. In the news. For up to the minute reports, stay tuned to this station. Now the news. All right, Jamil, would you take us in on the first news article, please? So let's go with what is near and dear to us, really close to us. Thomas resigns as superintendent of Lawrence County School District 55. Now, Lawrence County is adjacent to Greenwood, Greenwood. County, it right is. across the lake is Lawrence County. So like you said, near and dear to us, and we know many people who either work or live in Lawrence. Yes. So what happened here? So this is an ongoing case is what I'm going to refer to it as, because this is the first time that this particular superintendent has been in the news. There was a contractual issue or challenge last school term, and it appears to be one this school term. They had another meeting. The community has been really involved, which I'm appreciative of. I think that they are supporting her to the fullest. And I'm going to try to pronounce your name, Dr. Thomas, and my apologies if I mispronounce it. But I believe it's Dr. Amika Thomas. Very well-rounded, documented, knowledgeable individual, earned every degree that she sits behind. Individuals from all walks of life have come to attest to her ability to be the one to lead this district. So what each meeting that has been publicized is starting to reveal is that there's a conflict there, and it's more of a political conflict. There are personality conflicts that have occurred and made this difficult. I read one quote from this article that said that, and I'm paraphrasing, that what she has gone through is unbelievable, the attacks, the environment that she's had to endure through. So after a two-hour meeting, they return Uh, to our executive session, which, you know, no one is privy to except for those that are part of that board. They return stating that she has resigned from it and that they will have someone to stand in her place. Now, there are claims that her resignation, uh, that she was driven out of that role for a couple of reasons. What are some of the reasons why they said they wanted her removed? Or why do we think they're being driven out? What's the the underlying opinion here? What what do you think? I'm going to go right out and say it. There has been a pattern of removing African-American superintendents from schools across South Carolina. I'm going to build that case here in a minute. But before we do, we had a guest speaker, activist Derek Quarles, speak at a Greenwood County Democratic Party breakfast last May on this very subject with this superintendent back when the brouhaha was starting to happen. I'm going to play a little clip of what he had to say as he was engaged in that fight himself. But I've been in Lawrence for the last couple of months because the board chairman of the Lawrence School District, uh, have y'all heard of Moms for Liberty? Okay, oh yeah. They have a chapter that was started in July of last year in Lawrence County by a state representative and his wife. And so they have been intentional about trying to remove this black superintendent who has been in Lawrence County all her life. She's born and raised in Lawrence County, uh, school teacher, principal, worked at the district level, and now a superintendent. 
and has done a phenomenal job of increasing test scores. Y'all know that during COVID, test scores around the country went down because kids were learning from home and teachers are trying to adjust to technology and trying to figure out how we're gonna teach our kids and they're at home. And so test scores all around the country were declining, but in Lawrence County, test scores went up. And what the school board chairman was telling people, telling the other board members is that the test scores were low and the scores are low. I mean, they're low everywhere. But she didn't tell them that the test scores had increased during COVID. And shame on the other school board members for not even like doing the research themselves to know if, those, if that was true or not. They just took her at her word. And initially they were pretty much all on board with having her removed as superintendent. So I started going to these meetings, I started calling them individually, I started emailing them and just talking, getting in their ears and, and, and getting, trying to get, get them to understand the truth about what was happening. And they've all since changed their mind, all except for one has changed their mind about firing the superintendent during, yeah. And during the last meeting, all board members except for one um, left the stage and left the, left the chairman by herself. So the meeting had to be adjourned because they were trying to remove her as chairperson and she wouldn't entertain, she wouldn't entertain the motion. And so all the other board members just left the meeting because they felt like she was not honoring the rules and the policies of the school board. And so. So where I, I last left this knowledge was that Dr. Thomas, her seat was safe. You know, this is a former teacher of the year, former superintendent of the year, uh, that you know, she was she was safe in her role, that fought back against these irrational claims. But then here recently, it, it, it surprised me because I didn't expect it. I thought she had her job good and, I knew, and they I knew were they supportive. I knew they weren't going to stop. So let, mm. me, let me say one thing. Um, everybody in Lawrence County know what Lawrence County consists of. Now, there are some folks down there that do understand that your level of ability to be effective does not have anything to do with your color. There are some there. And when I researched this article, I started off the thought of calling roll because we can't go to school and we don't call roll. So the name that we haven't called yet that is helping with what you've already stated by dismantling education and removing black superintendents, black leaders from these schools is none other than the famous Jim Crow. And so everybody that is a body needs to spend a couple of moments, gather around a table and read a little bit about Jim Crow and tell me if you don't see it resurfacing. It is happening over and over and over again, just like in Richland County School District 2. They went in there. So Mr. Quarles pointed out that Moms for Jim Crow was working to get rid of... I'm sorry. No, that'll work. Okay. That'll work. Moms for Jim Crow. <laughs> Maybe that's accurate. Uh, worked to get rid of the Lauren superintendent. But then as you're bringing up, in Richland District 2... Yeah. Baron had, Davis. Dr. Yes, Baron Davis. Dr. Davis uh, was a superintendent, Strong. very popular, resigned after a closed-door school board meeting, six-hour-long meeting. And here's, the, here's another thing. So you contract with these individuals to come in and do a job. They have went and got the, the knowledge and the training necessary, and they're able to show you how they can take your school district from one point to another point. And because the pride of members on a school board get in the way. They prefer to let all the children suffer, all the teachers suffer, and say, South Carolina, you're fine at 49th and 50th in the state for education, and we don't care about that because we've got to get rid of these knowledgeable uh, superintendents and these knowledgeable leaders in the schools. So what are you worried more about your pride than you're worried about actually being able to move South Carolina from 49th on up to 10th and maybe on up to number one? When you look at the case for Dr. Davis, everything documented there was good stuff. When you look at Dr. Thomas, everything that's documented there was good stuff. So let's talk about the map here. Lawrence County, Moms for Liberty chapter, a year later, Dr. Thomas resigns. Yeah, right? and we're going we're gonna to stop this resigning stuff. This is, you're being forced out of your position. When, when you're, the work environment has become so hostile. You got to go. You've got to go. You just, for your own sanity. So yeah. we get that. She didn't resign yeah. because she was tired of the job. She was tired of the people, Yeah, I'm sure. But Moms for Liberty in Lawrence County, Dr. Thomas resigns. Moms for Liberty won the majority of seats in Richland County, mm -hmm. District 2. And then a few months later, Dr. Davis 
resigned. Mm-hmm. Then we take it to Charleston. Moms for Liberty back candidates took over the majority. Yeah. And the black superintendent there, Dr. Eric Gallion, yes. is gone. Yes. So three black superintendents, very qualified, great reviews up until Moms for Liberty back candidates won those school boards. Yeah. So what it should encourage people to do is to go and look at what it means to be a representative of the school board. Look at the qualifications. Uh, Y'all can send us an email when you find out what those qualifications are. (laughs) South Carolina, I think the number is about 73 school districts. You have paid and non-paid positions. 68 of the 73 um, positions are elected. And then you have two districts that are showing that their individuals are appointed. There are 28 school districts that are non-paid. So if you are on that board, you are serving as volunteer members of the board. A couple numbers I want to give you all is that from an article from Ed Week, which is a great resource, educators spend a lot of time in this one. From 2020 to 2022, 38% of the biggest 500 schools changed under leadership. That went up 10% from 2018 to 2020. So what we see is that even during the COVID times, there was a spike in superintendents stepping down, walking away. Now, what made them step down and what made them walk away? This article states that it becomes too political. When they had to go and find new people, 240 districts changed, if we want to put numbers to the 238%. 246 districts changed leadership superintendents. 94 that left or let go were women of that 246. So if you got 246, 94 of them that left in that 38% were women. Oh, but no problem because they were all replaced by women, right? No. <laughs> of course 66% not. 66% of those individuals were replaced by men. Of course. Of course. So at what point, women, do we need to keep ringing the bell and say that history is doing the one thing that we don't want it to do? It is repeating itself in reducing a woman's worth and her ability to handle difficult situations. Dr. Thomas was doing what Dr. Thomas was supposed to do, but no one can tell me anything different. There was a clear budding of the heads. Somebody on that board was not comfortable with someone as grand as Dr. Thomas leading that school. I'm going to share one more number with you to finish off. That number is 1.5 million. Now, what does that number mean? Is that the money we got earmarked? That money is how much these school districts in South Carolina that booted those superintendents have to pay those superintendents as part of their contract buyout. 1.5? So Baron Davis, Dr. Baron Davis is receiving $615,000 in his settlement agreement. And he should get every day. In Charleston County, Dr. Eric Gallion uh, is getting $359,000. And there's another $360,000 being paid to yet another superintendent that they had removed a couple of years prior. Mm -hmm. So in all, we're looking at over a million dollars still having to be paid to these superintendents. So you know, while I'm sure it's horrible that they had to resign, I'm not feeling too sad for them. I'm not crying a lot of tears with the six hundred thousand yeah, dollar payout. Your, your integrity and your your credibility is being exactly. walked. You know, you think about this. This is the for Dr. Thomas. I'm gonna speak on. You live. You grew up there. Your family is there. Your roots are there. And so your family nor you can walk amongst the streets without having to hear something that is so hurtful to you. A good point, but I think the voters and the residents and taxpayers in these districts really ought to know how much these Moms for Liberty school board members are costing them from a bottom line. So true, so true. So um, voting season is coming up. I think, Lawrence, y'all got some school board members that need to be replaced. What say ye? U.S. universities are under scrutiny for unreported billions of dollars from foreign governments. Now, actually, Dr. Jamil Brooks, you brought this to my attention. And as I was sharing with you earlier, I was up for maybe two, three hours the other night researching this because it kept leading from one black hole to another black hole. And I just kept getting sucked in, (laughs) sucked in. This is a, a crazy thing that I had heard nothing about. So I'm very grateful you brought this to our attention. Essentially, when you're looking at universities, they 
cooperate with governments from around the world to exchange uh, science research, to, to, to bring in funds and collaborate on science or technology projects. And it's something that in a global world you do. So, yeah. so that's fine. And there have been certain laws and regulations that are in place today to govern some of that. So one of the laws dictates that if there is a contribution made to a university from a foreign government over $250,000, you have to report it. Yes. And there's some limitations as to what you're allowed to share and, and not allowed to share. Well, in the Republican House Congress recently, a couple of representatives stood up and said, listen, we don't like some of these bad actors that are out there. Uh, and so, in fact, instead of me summarizing it, can I play the news clip from ABC Please News? Please do. Please do. Where you can hear some of these lawmakers on the House floor in Washington, D.C. Okay. Our nation's top colleges and universities on the hook for receiving billions of dollars from foreign countries. Unfortunately, many schools fail to report these foreign gifts and funding, leaving foreign actors with a stronghold, stranglehold, on U.S. academic institutions. House Republicans say as much as $13 billion in foreign funds to universities from adversarial countries could have been unreported. We permit hostile foreign actors like Qatar, <coughs> Iran, and communist China to buy influence on our college campuses. Full measures, Cheryl Atkinson recently reported Texas A&M has accepted more than $1 billion from Qatar for projects, including sensitive nuclear research. Texas A&M also has a campus there. We know that Hamas, their leadership lives in Qatar and is supported by the Qatari regime. Are they sharing some of this military secrets or research with them. The House passed a bill with bipartisan support just a few days ago that lowers the minimum foreign gift reporting threshold for colleges and universities. More than a dozen higher education groups sent a letter to House leadership opposing the bill, calling it problematic, saying it will curtail international research and collaboration. So that's what this is all about. So there was an act that was proposed by a Republican subcommittee, and the act was called the Deterrent Act. Did yes. you see that? Yes. <laughs> and it's all capital letters. You know what what that means when it's all capital letters? It stands for something. You want to know what it stands for? Go. All right, here it is. It's called the Defending Education Transparency and Ending Rogue Regimes Engaging in Nefarious Transactions Act. <laughs> That's the Deterrent Act. It's so... Dang, blang, silly. How backwards these people bend to get acronyms to work. Listen, can we go on a sidebar for a second? Yes, please. I came across an article during my research. You talk about going down <laughs> black holes and rabbit holes. This was a black rabbit hole because this got me sucked in completely. I want to talk about an article called The Seven Quirkiest Bill Names Using Acronyms. Oh, my God. Because the deterrent act, I was like, my goodness, could this be the only one that's like it? And it's not. So what I want to do is I'm going to read... The full act name. Okay. And I'm going to challenge you to see if you can mentally capture all those first letters okay. to see what that spells. On a day where I don't have a pen. Go. No, no, no pen's allowed. you got to do this all in your brain. Okay. So this is going to be hard. I don't even think I could do this. Okay, got But it. let's just see how close you can get when okay. I read the full name. Okay. So here's one. This is a long one. So here we go. The standardizing, testing, and accountability before large elections giving electors necessary information for unobstructed selection act. So you don't include act, so it ends with selection. Sales. Close. What is it? All of that spells the Stable Genius Act. <laughs> of course, Stable Genius is what <laughs> President Donald Trump called himself, and this was a law oh governing something gosh. to do with his tweets. Oh, my So God. all those words... Spelled out, stable genius. Here's another one, a little easier. Okay. It's This is the communications over various feeds electronically for engagement act. Communications over various feeds electronically for engagement. Cover? Covefe. Oh. Do you remember where that came from? No. It's C-O-V-F-E-F-E. -E -E. So, Covefe... <laughs> was a tweet President Trump put out there during his presidency, and all it said was, Kofefe, 
C-O-V-F-E-F-E. Nobody knew what it meant. One common theory was that he just butt tweeted. He said on his phone. Most of his stuff is butt tweets. <laughs> and so soon after, uh, somebody filed a Covife Act. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, here's another one. Okay. The zeroing out money for buying influence after elections act. Zeroing out money for buying influence after elections act. I don't know. It's called the zombie act. Talking about zombie money, about money that's left over after the election is done. Uh, We'll go through quickly these next two ones. The giving increased variety to ensure milk into the lives of kids act. That's called the Give Milk Act. And uh, next one, Cutting Off Rampant Access to Crack Kits Act. That was uh, submitted by Senator Marco Rubio, by the way. Cutting Off Rampant Access to Crack Kits. Kits? Kits. K-I-T-S. Yeah. So this is called the Crack Act. That's what it spells. Back back then, there was a belief that uh, some bill signed by the Biden administration would pay for crack pipes for people using crack. Do you recall hearing that? At, at uh, no. Okay, I remember diving deep into that, and the oh, White wow. House just said this was silly. Yeah, absolutely was. silly. But Marco Rubio felt that there needed to be a crack act to counter it. Then the last one is this one. I think you need to pay attention to. You need this one. Ready? <laughs> I'm ready. The accountability and Congressional Responsibility on Naming Your Motions Act. Accountability (laughs) and Congressional Responsibility on Naming Your Motions Act. Listen, you probably shouldn't have asked me that after you just read off all these ones that Trump said, because the thing that came to my mind was anger. Anger. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. This is actually called the Acronym Act. There was an actual act passed that was to address these rampant use of acronyms. (laughs) And all the other acts. <laughs> that one that one has my applause. I, I thought that was great. Accountability oh. and congressional responsibility. Anyhow, sorry to get us off track. No, but, that's okay. That was worth it. But we were talking about the defending education transparency and ending rogue regimes engaging in nefarious transactions yeah. act, the deterrent act. Anyhow. So this act wants to limit the amount of gifts that are able to be accepted. So you're talking of going from 250000 down to 50000 Down to 50000 Um, And then you have to report. But what they're stating is, the members that have brought this, is that there are a number of institutions that are not reflecting where their funds are coming from. They're not reporting it. Well, let's go back to this reporting. So there's actually two different reporting level changes. Okay. Uh, you're right about the $250,000 down to 50000 Correct. But then if you are engaging with countries that are called entities of concern... It's zero. It's zero. You so can't take every, Well, no, you can take it. Mm-hmm. The threshold, though, is every penny has, has to, to be, be reported. reported. Okay. There's, you know, kind of just a tightening of the reporting infrastructure is really all this is. Yeah. So, you know, when we look at these things, though... This one always piques my interest because we we always think that there's not enough money. And what we have to do when we start to look at some of these articles is to understand that there is money. It's just how that money is being used or where that money may be. You know that education is probably one of the most expensive commodities that we have besides healthcare. Right. But you have to have both of those. You have to have health care and you have to have education. And so when you start digging into this and you see, well, where's the money coming from for the building that just got added to said university? Where's the money coming from for the research that is taking place that is going to give said university so much recognition? These are the documents that would give lay people or just people who are just really not connected to it some insight. But I also go to think about middle class people. If a middle class person submits their tax documents and they forget to add two or three lines, the IRS is coming to get every ounce of those two or three lines that you did not put in. And it doesn't take them long to get it. Actually, they can take your money faster than they can give your money back if they make an error. 
And this is for people who live day to day, check to check. But when you have institutions as big as this, they get to play around with it a little bit longer. And so when this uh, act proposed fines on them, I'm not one to disagree with having fines if you're not. So that was the other part of the deterrent act. It was lowering the threshold for reporting and and increasing fines because there has been some noncompliance. Yeah. Universities failing to report things that they should have reported. Yeah, And I, I think that has to happen because when you're dealing with these type situations, you have so many people that are working every day and they're just caught up into living that they're not able to see where all this other money is going. So when you put it that way, it sounds rational. It does. It sounds like, okay, we can get on board it. Let's tighten things up a little bit. It does. But let's talk about how the House Republicans presented this bill. So I went to the House Republican Committee site here. This is the Education Workforce Committee. Yeah. And we heard a couple of the members speak in that news clip. They put out a brief that explains what the Deterrent Act does. And here's how they start. America's foreign adversaries are targeting our nation's students. Notice I'm not using an AI voice. This is my voice this time. You're doing a great job, though. From stealing research to pushing propaganda to censoring free speech, colleges and universities are on the front lines of malign foreign influence. Foreign regimes, such as the Chinese Communist Party, have expanded their influence by providing American academic institutions with lucrative funding opportunities. Many schools fail to report these foreign gifts and funding, leaving foreign actors with a stranglehold on U.S. academic institutions. Section 117's loose legislative language, Biden's blatant crippling of enforcement efforts, and institutions' refusal to adhere to the law have resulted in billions of dollars in foreign funds infiltrating our country undetected. So I read that, and I want nothing to do with this bill. You know, I always say game recognize game. The way they were able to pull this together and put this bill on the forefront is because what they are saying that internationally can be done, they know that that takes place nationally. It's happening here. So everything that they're talking about, um, people, I mean, if you, let's go. With You're the saying Supreme, that they're guilty of the very thing the that very they're saying. The very same thing. So you, t- yeah. you can take the Supreme Court. You take gifts and you don't report it. Well, look here. There it is in higher ed. It's happening stateside, just like it's not. So my thing is, you put this piece of legislator in in place. This can be a precedent to hold another entity accountable for doing the very same thing that they keep not doing. But the Republicans were very much in favor of this, so they're enacting this law. Correct. Which you're saying could come around and bite them in the ass. I'm hoping that it does. Yes. But it kind of comes down to just politics in general. To me— there is a rational way to approach it, like how you opened it up and I opened it up explaining this bill and what it does and yes. did not seem very objectionable, to how the Republicans spin it into Biden's refusal yes. to enforce. What, where does that Well, because that they feel like that's the only way they can get buy-in is to turn one against the other. Okay, so I'm going to do something that probably has no place on black, white, and blue in the South, but I can't help it. Let me tie this in. Anyone who watched uh, the Cat Williams special will know what I'm talking about. Cat Williams, who is a comedian when asked about politics, said something that to me was profound. He said, if you're at war, regardless of what your beliefs are, let's just let's take the let's take the United States Army. You have people that are Republicans, independents. You got some that don't even vote. Right. You got some that are part of the the no what do you call it? No labels party, all fighting together for one cause. And he said he didn't use that example, but he said when it comes down to fixing a problem, from a political standpoint, it takes members of all parties to work together to get that done. Only if you want to get better. And he said, you know, I could go and I could tell jokes to the Republicans about what the Democrats do and they will laugh all day and vice versa. He said, but that's not what we're here to do. We're here to find a common ground to get better. And so when we're talking about these type things, I and and you do the same thing. We could look at objectively what a Republican proposes 
and analyze that to see if there's any value there that could protect and make us better. And if it is, then we have no problem getting on board with it. Sometimes, not sometimes, but most times the Republicans use the opposite strategy. They want to turn you against a party in order to win you over. When they waste so much energy with that, what they should do is try to figure out what said party is saying. Is there value there? And will it benefit some of their constituents? Because all of their constituents are not in the higher end of the tax brackets either. So this deterrent act passed the House. Uh, So now it's on its way to the Senate in some form. They claim it was passed as a bipartisan bill, which means, here's the reality, if one Democrat crosses the aisle and votes for it, then you announce it's bipartisan in in the other way, (laughs) right? When the Democrats pass something and one, you know, Mitt Romney supports it, it's now bipartisan, right? So every Republican who voted, all 215 voted yes, and I'm not including the ones that didn't vote at all, but 215 Republicans yes, zero Republicans no. On the Democratic side, 31 Democrats voted yes. 170 voted no. And I looked at the list of yeses, and there were a couple of names on there that I respected. Okay. So you can say, yeah, it's a little bipartisan. But I think even though when you and I talked about it and we found it was rational, at least the the concepts of it, we didn't read the detailed language. Mm -mm. The National Association, um, the the Education Association, wrote a letter to the the House uh, issuing some of their concerns. Yes. And they dove deep. And in fact, this letter was actually quite supportive of this bill. They said, this seems okay, we can live with this. The reporting, well, now that's a greater burden. You yep. know, we'll figure that out. But there were a couple of things there that I read. And I was like, boy, yeah, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. So for example, you uh, you want to deal with these uh, certain entities, certain nations that are considered on the, the naughty list. You have to get an exemption, a written exemption from the secretary. education yeah. secretary mm-hmm. from the U.S. Department of Education. And so this association says, listen, that requirement is duplicative of existing requirements that are already in place, right? We already have to go to the State Department, the Treasury Department. And by the way, the Education Department is the least informed, the least involved, the least knowledgeable about these world affairs and Mm -hmm. strategic importance of the research we're doing. Yes. Why would we want to go to a Betsy DeVos to see if we can engage in scientific research in Russia when we already have to go to the State Department and other departments. I thought that was a very valid concern. Mm -hmm. So there were a couple of things there that I saw. And in fact, the Chips and Science Act that was recently passed created a new chief of research security position Mm. that's responsible for this very thing of reviewing foreign cooperative research opportunities. So why do we need to get the the National Department of Education involved? Uh, It doesn't make sense, and I thought that was a very valid uh, comment. Their response came, I mean, it was very well done. So the president of the, was it Ted Mitchell, uh, did a really good job with writing a response to them. Um, One of my issues with it is whenever you're doing research, they are not saying that you have to, whoever's receiving this money, you have to publicly disclose who they are. And that means that the individuals, the faculty members that are doing this research, names would be publicly disclosed. And we all know how it is over here in these United States when you don't agree with the majority. Every day you're fighting for your life. And so now you're saying that if we do this, pretty much saying you're not going to protect the researchers. Let Let me share this with you. This whole subject hits personal because I was one of those researchers Mm. working in an international environment. Wow. So back in the late 90s, I was working on my master's degree in physics. Okay. So I'm at the university and my my co-students, my fellow researchers, one was from Iran, Mm -hmm. one was from China. The researcher, two researchers or or, um, two professors leading the research, one was based in the United States, the other was Dr. Wu from China. In fact, Dr. Wu was great. He could speak for an hour in quantum physics and we could not understand a word he was saying. <laughs> Very thick accent. But he wrote everything meticulously on the board. We just copied down all the formulas and notes and we studied it afterwards. But yeah. we're at this one social event where, you know, the students and the professors are hanging around, you know, having coffee and donuts and whatever. Okay. And we sit down with Dr. Wu and and one of my buddies asked him, Dr. Wu, where did you get your PhD? And he goes, oh, a PhD, Yupon. Mm. And we're like, is that near Beijing? Where, where is that? 
No, 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 no. Yupon, University, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> now, this guy was in his 60s, so he got his PhD decades ago at the University of Pennsylvania, and he still had the thickest accent yeah. in the world, but the nicest guy, too. Yeah. But at the time, though, you never really thought about who you were researching with. Yeah. I can't even imagine sitting in a room with a scientist from Iran and a scientist from China with the adversarial relationships that are in place today. Mm-hmm. Now, Jamila, you have a couple of items that you found that circle back to previous topics that we've covered here on this show. I do. Would you like to bring one up now? Um, I actually like it when you bring it up. I'm like <laughs> feeding off of you. I know that's weird, but that's how our relationship works, Bill. Don't don't rock the waters. <laughs> um, but well, let's will... let, let's talk about liquor liability okay. laws because that was our last episode before the year ended. Okay, and we talked about a growing movement in South Carolina where it's called the Save Venues movement, where any venue, whether it's a bar, whether it's an entertainment center, or anything else that serves liquor, yeah. they are required by state law to get liquor liability insurance. And that way, if somebody gets drunk at your facility and and gets into an accident, that you could be responsible for damages. Mm-hmm. The problem with the way the laws currently are is that regardless of how much alcohol is consumed at your facility and how many different facilities a perpetrator may have visited, or even if the visitor was already on drugs or some Im- impeding chemicals before even coming into your environment, you could be liable for 100% of damages yeah. regardless. And and the cost of insurance has skyrocketed 10 times since this law and venues are having to shut down because they just can't afford to stay in business. Yeah. So you saw some update recently. Yeah, and I'm so glad that people are talking about it. And I remember when you brought this up on the podcast, I thought, oh, wow, that's, you know, that'll be a missed opportunity if we didn't put some heat on this. Well, we're not the only ones that's talking about it. So there was an article that came out supposedly happening is lawmakers understand what is happening in terms of the, the liabilities. And what they're going to do is watch the trend. And if the trend is negative or continues to be negative, then they will put stops in place that will be regulations on the insurance companies. So one of them, I'll take this quote, it says, of course, we've been getting a lot of complaints from bars, restaurants, VFWs and different places like that that serve alcohol. And they're very upset about their insurance costs, which have just skyrocketed. And we understand those problems. And this is from Senator Sandy uh, Sin, a Republican from Charleston. So they're aware. And I think that's half the battle. But the other half of that is if you or someone you know own these establishments, you can't stop talking. Don't let them take it off their radar that you're putting us in a position where we cannot operate. So I encourage you to go back to episode 18 and listen to uh, a more in-depth discussion on that subject. Also circling back, going way back to episode nine, I believe, we talked about our congressman, Jeff Duncan. But before we talk about some of the recent updates, I want to quote a tweet that Jeff Duncan made several years back. He was engaged with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and was worried about uh, censorship of, you know, how they were cracking down on misinformation and, and, you know, all that. Well, the Republicans who thrive off of misinformation, I'm not saying everyone, but the ones who do thrive off misinformation Mm -hmm. were screaming about First Amendment rights. Oh, First Amendment. So Jeff Duncan tweeted, Facebook's, quote, terms of service for what content is allowed to be posted on the site should simply mirror the First Amendment. That's why I gave Mark Zuckerberg a copy of the Constitution after yesterday's hearing. The First Amendment doesn't just allow freedom of speech when it's convenient. So I mentioned that tweet, Jamil, because you have something that you saw in the news recently regarding our congressman yeah. that I think ties into that. Go yeah, ahead. South Carolina Representative Jeffrey Duncan admitted that his estranged wife was entitled to a divorce based on the grounds of adultery and asked that a judge stop her from bad-mouthing him in public. What was that last part again? Stop her from bad-mouthing him in well, public. Hold on, let me rewind and read that part of the tweet again. The First Amendment doesn't just allow freedom of speech when it's convenient. Sounds like Congressman Duncan singing a different tune here, does it not? This request was revealed in a five-page response filed as part of the, the divorce filed by the estranged wife. 
So it's uh, freedom of speech for me, me, but not for thee. Let me just go with this. And I, you know how I tie things in, so y'all just have to bear with me. Now, now Mr. Duncan said his wife can't say a word about him in public Mm-mm. because it could damage him. But you got people who will do a total abortion banned and then say the woman who was assaulted, you got to take your whole medical record to a local sheriff or a police department and share all of that hateful, hurtful information over again, regardless of what it does for you in the public. You go tell all of that. But Jeff Duncan can say, Mm-mm, hush, you can't say nothing that'll damage me. We and then you got a nerve to give somebody else the Constitution. Shame on you. Shame. And that's a wrap for this episode of Black, White, and Blue in the South. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you made it here to the end, you must have loved it. So why don't you take a quick minute and leave us a rating using whatever podcast app you're on, and you will have struck a blow in support of seahorse reproductive rights, showing those moms for liberty horsey haters that they don't have the final say. If you are a blue dot in a red sea, keep the faith, keep up the hard work. Change only happens over many years of work and dedication. So join us in that fight and get involved any way you can. Go vote February 3rd. The end. The preceding podcast is a product of Big Media and copyright 2024. All rights reserved.